and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern, sitting in my car next to the woods near my neighborhood. And on the other line, on the Zoom line, are Tim McIntosh and Heidi White. Tim, Heidi, how's it going in self-quarantine, in uh, self-isolation in Colorado and in Washington State? You hanging in there? You know, and I'm not in my car, so I feel like I'm winning in this game right now. Yeah, right. I didn't realize it was a game. I can just go home. <laughs> David, I'm winning. David, so are I want you, you to stay a little bit. Is the claustrophobia getting to you? <laughs> David, snapped, uh, David snapped back with, "Well, I didn't know it was a game, so I could grab home right now. I can take my ball." Is this, is this, right now. Is that is this uh, if, if it's a battle, I can I can just go home and you know. We're my, all threes on the enneagram, right? Everything's a competition That's, until we're more holy, which I hope I'm getting there at some point. Well, no, this this uh, self isolation maybe working on some theosis in us. Um, well, we are here so. speaking of the sto- speaking of people who are having theosis worked out in them. We're here to talk about integrating gay balls. And um, is that a leap? I don't know. Maybe that's nice. Just, no, uh, that was perfect. He, he does talk a lot in this section about uh, being made uh, a better person, <laughs> shall we say. Um, we're here to discuss chapters 22 through 27 of Lucy Maud Montgomery's mm-hmm. Anna Green We are well into this book and um, wanted to remind people that next is going to be Graham Greene's The End of the Affair. So, you know, get ready for that. Make sure you've got your copy. If you need to, you can head over to bookshop.org slash close reads and get a copy in such a way that supports this show and also supports uh, independent booksellers. So um, you can, again, that's bookshop.org slash close reads. Uh, also, conversation which you can join can be uh, had over on Facebook, Facebook uh, search bar, type in Close Reads Podcast, and there's a discussion group for the show. There's, of course, Instagram as well, at Close Reads Pods. And then our newsletter, we'll hopefully have a new one coming out later today. That's closereads.substack.com. Uh, we got a question about movies to watch with your kids. And I'm going to be addressing that on the newsletter. And then I also asked our mutual friend, Josh Gibbs, who's a great film writer um, about his list. And so he gave me a very Josh Gibbsian list as well, which I think everyone's going to really enjoy. So those are some ways that you can get in touch. If you want to email us, you can email us at closeriespodcasts at gmail.com. All right, Tim, I've got two opening questions for you. One is related to a text message that you sent, but the other is you have something very important to share with us because you told us about a very funny video online which you said that you wouldn't be able to talk about on the show without laughing. So I'm going to uh-huh. put that to, to hey, a test. This is cruel. You have to tell us <laughs> what the video is online and contain your, the degrees of your mirth while doing so. Tim does not know that I, did, that I was going to do this, but he set me up for it by saying, if I even think about it during the podcast, then I'm going to start laughing. So I'm going to give you a chance to think about it on the podcast and just get it out of your system. It's... <laughs> This is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, like you don't understand how hard I'm working right now to suppress this. This is like that scene in Mary Poppins when they are up on the ceiling trying to not laugh. (laughs) And then, you know how many people are like walking right now or doing the laundry or running errands or whatever they're doing and like they're laughing just because you're laughing. <laughs> yes. I, I don't even know what you're talking about right well, now. And I, I can't contain my mirth. So. We, need a, we, need, we all need a good laugh right now. So That's right. We all need a good okay, laugh. T- okay. So this is, okay. It's a, it's a church service, right? It's a, No, no. It's actually, I think it's a, 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 a videotaped 
<laughs> it's a videotape recording. I don't know when it was done. Um, of a Methodist church service, and there's okay. I just need to tell everybody how to find it. Let me like let me preface it by saying like I my buddy Andrew and I yeah I live on his property. He and I went to the grocery store wearing our masks yesterday, and we like if we find one of those videos, we we trade them with each other. And so we've traded tons of videos. And I said, Andrew, I can't believe I've not shown this one to you. Of all the videos we've ever shown to each other, this is the one. This is like the golden chalice of these little like, <laughs> videos. And he was like, the holy grail video. It really is. And he said, okay, you know, sure it is. And I showed it to him. And I promise you, like tears were dripping off our chin by the end of it. So the thing to search is um, in YouTube, search John. <laughs> let me first, let me first say the way in which you watch it. And then I'll say how you find it. You have to watch it twice. And <laughs> the first time you watch it without subtitles. And then the second time you watch it with subtitles. And the subtitles, okay. someone like wrote in the subtitles of what they hear, not what he's trying to actually say. John <laughs> Daker, D-A-K-E-R. If you search that in YouTube, that should do the job. But just in case, um, type in Amore, also A-M-O-R-E. Okay. Just buckle up. <laughs> just buckle up. It is kid safe. Okay. It is kid safe. And I feel a little bit bad because this poor poor gentleman who's trying to sing i'm i am just laughing at him, at him? Himself. yeah and i wish there was like you're not laughing with him no i'm i'm not yeah. <laughs> okay so, uh, maybe we should do a zoom call sometime the first time that heidi and i watch it oh i would love it. that all right well people people have to go check it out let us know on a scale of um zero to uh, well, I was going to give an Anne of Green Gables reference we haven't talked about yet. We haven't read yet, so I can't do that. But on a scale of zero to ten, uh, Tim not being able to talk uh, on the podcast, <laughs> tell us where you fall in in terms of in terms of whether this meets your sense of humor. Um, but speaking of uh, meeting sensitive humor, Tim, you texted us mm, yesterday, maybe the day before. You sometime since the last episode, you texted and said that you are really enjoying these particular chapters. Yeah. Um, uh, you said, if I can see if I can find it. Okay, you said, these chapters of Anne are so fun! Exclamation point. And let me just say, <laughs> I just need to add some context here. Because it's not like every time we are reading a book, Tim's texting us and saying, these chapters of The Power and the Glory are so fun. Or so these fun. chapters of Crime and Punishment are so fun. But let I me mean, even beyond the fun. We're not texting each other all the time saying, <laughs> this is a great section because we kind of know we have a podcast where we get to do that. Right. Um, but, but you went out of your way as we, we hadn't texted in a couple days, you know, you went out of your way to bring this up and say, these chapters of Anne of GG are so fun exclamation point. Yeah. Um, and you're not one who I would say t- is a, is an exclamation, not an exclamation point pointer. I'm not an exclamation um, point. I like try to reserve it for special occasions. I try to like, not is this. W- like wash out the English language through overuse. Yeah, well, right. 
yeah. Very so, I mean, responsible yeah. of you. Thank yeah, you. right. You Thank have you your, for that. You're a conservation. <laughs> you're, yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, full disclosure. As I'm reading the chapters after you said that, I'm sitting here thinking, so I'm, what is it about, what happened in these chapters that Tim got so enthusiastic about? And then I was reading and I was thinking, this is a fascinating case study in Tim McIntosh's brain about why these particular chapters more than others inspired you to send that sex message, which now it's turning out that this particular episode is just all around a case study into Tim McIntosh's brain. So I know, just, this yeah, is so Oh man, it really is. You were, and we're prying my cranium open. Yeah, exactly. So what, what's going on with these chapters? I loved the hair episode. Mm-hmm. I somehow feel like that one was if it's not kind of like one of the classic scenes from this book, then it ought to be. Um, I loved her relationship with her teacher. I loved, for me, everything is becoming like fuller. And I, I actually think that the book is becoming chapter by chapter by chapter, better written in each chapter, if that makes any sort of sense. Like, was this Mm -hmm. Montgomery's, first book. I mean, I know that she had been writing for a while, but it just seems like she just really hits her stride. I mean, almost exactly on, for me, chapter 21. And all these different characters are like really fully formed. And the episodes, there's kind of like a rhythm that has we've achieved with the episodes. Like we know kind of, okay, there's going to be a problem. We've had a couple of chapters without a problem. We know there's going to be a problem. What's the problem going to be? And how has Anne kind of got a, gotten into this trouble? How is Marilla going to scold her? You know, just all these sorts of, there's a really great rhythm that's happened. Um, I think that's part of the reason why it just felt like it's really easy to like slip deep into the book. And I just appreciate it. I just really appreciate it. I think I just kind of fallen for Anne as the short version. I just think as a character, she's just so terrific. Well, let's, I want to, you mentioned that the book is, seems to be getting better written bit by bit. Maybe, you know, Lucy Montgomery is hitting her stride and so forth. Can we, um, can we talk about that a little bit more? I mean, this being close read than all, I would love to talk about ways that we see the writing being different or more complex or, or, uh, you know, some evidence of what you're saying there. I don't say evidence like, prove your points. Um, but just, you know, let's, can we, can we talk a little bit about where we're seeing that right, show up? Right. Heidi, do you have any thoughts on this? Because I think you said that the, the, even in later books, the writing kind of gets maybe a little bit more complex mm. as well. So are you, do you agree with that take for this particular book in terms of throughout it, that it involves? I do. I think that there's a couple of factors in it. And at this point she's settled into her life. And so we're kind of hitting, I think, Lucy Maud Montgomery's particular genius as a writer, which is the text and subtext of an ordinary life and hmm. how funny and meaningful, uh, what kind of depth, it, how depth and lightheartedness mingle together. I think that she's particularly brilliant at that. And, and now we're, in the meat of that. Like we're in the heart of that in, in this particular book. Uh, my favorite chapter is we're reading next week. It's the unfortunate Lily made that I think is, I mean, that's my favorite little anecdote in this book, but that's how she writes. Like she writes, I compared it last week. She, 
too, pearls on a string, beads on a string. And actually that's a, that's a simile that Lucy Maud Montgomery herself uses about her own writing. And she uses that simile in several of her books, the description of, of life as a, as, as days and events succeeding one another as pearls slipping off of a string. And we're kind of there in the book. Here's the next little pearl of formation for Anne. And here's the next one. And it's delightful and it's funny. And it's also very meaningful and charming and it has depth to it and all of that. Um, So I think that uh, leaving kind of the analysis of the writing to the two of you, I think that that particular plot and thematic development is really, really well done here, as well as the constant juxtaposition of um, Anne's flights of fancy with her kind of prosaic, mundane, everyday life, um, which we've talked about in the first episode and how that creates the humor in the book. Yeah. An example, an example being, I love Miss Stacy with my whole heart, Marilla. She's so ladylike. She has such a sweet voice. When she pronounces my name, I feel instinctively that she's spelling it with an E. I love that. (laughs) I love it. Well, one of the things I mentioned this last week, I think I mentioned it anyway, that the book does a really good job as it goes on of capturing the essence of Anne's voice and Anne's sort of view or uh, way of looking at the world, of experience in the world within the pros of the narrator as well so like the first paragraph of chapter 26 the story club is formed is the name of the chapter it says junior avonlea found it hard to settle down to humdrum existence again to Anne, in particular things seemed fearfully flat stale and unprofitable after the goblet of excitement she had been sipping for weeks could she go back to the former quiet pleasures of those faraway days before the concert at first (laughs) as she told diana she did not think she really could and there's then there's another line where it says, uh, oh, then okay, then it says, I'm positively certain, Diana, that life never can never be quite the same again as it was in those olden days. She said mournfully, as if referring to a period of at least fifty years back. <laughs> and so the book itself, sort of like, it both sort of captures the Anne's voice and then sort of playfully mocks Anne's voice. Yeah, at the same yeah. Time. When it's endearing, it's not like. You know, it it, it it can be both uh, respectful and and take joy in Anne's sort of particular way of experience in the world, while also recognizing that it's a bit, you know, it's a bit silly at the same time. Yeah. You know? Right. I have another example. Can I, and, Heidi? And, can I say one oh, thing before ahead. you go to your example? Yeah, I please. Wanna, um, I wish that I at the beginning of the book had started had noted all of the kind of unquoted Shakespeare allusions that are in this book. Uh-huh. Oh my goodness. Flat, stale, and unprofitable is Act One, Scene Two, Hamlet. Of Hamlet. Mm-hmm. And there's tons of them, tons of them in here. Anyway, I just that would wish be a I great, just... that would be a great essay topic for like a high school student who's you know reading this over quarantine, and you know you know you maybe maybe you're a parent and you need something to, for your kids to do, do a little examination of Shakespeare and Anne of Green Gables because that would be a a pleasant way to, to, to spend some time. Right. Well, Shakespeare and the romantic poets, uh, Keats, Tennyson, I mean, Tennyson is Victorian, but like there's so many of, there's so many illusions 
in in these books, like over and over and over again. And then that creates a lot of the, um, like I think I said this in the first episode, I, I read Anne before I read Shakespeare, of course, and before I read the Romantics. And then as a young adult and a student, as I read Shakespeare or Keats or... Browning or whatever, like I would recognize them, the little lines and snippets from Anne and that kind of wove my soul into those later poets that I read as well, Mm. because I already had associated it with, you know, Anne weeping over whatever saying life is flat, stale and unprofitable. So all these little phrases. The good books Um, prepare us for the great books. That's really true. Okay. So one other thing that I love and for is um, for how much she loves nature and how she has, you know, when I later read Lewis, when he talks about the inconsolable secret, how nature awakened, like seeing the beauty in nature awakens us to our spiritual longings. And that is embodied, I think, in and maybe more than any other literary character that I've ever known. And it goes throughout the whole series of the books. Um, So the little passage I'm about to read has that as well as what we were just talking about with the, um, you know, the juxtaposition of the lofty thoughts with the very mundane ones. So this is in the section of Anne is invited out to tea and she's walking home now from the Allens. A cool wind was blowing down over the long harvest fields from the rims of furry western hills and whistling through the poplars. One clear star hung above the orchard, and the fireflies were flitting over in Lover's Lane, in and out among the ferns and rustling boughs. Anne watched them as she talked and somehow felt that wind and stars and fireflies were all tangled up together into something unutterably sweet and enchanting. Oh, Merle, I've had the most fascinating time. I feel that I've not lived in vain, and I shall always feel like that, even if I should never be invited to tea at a manse again. When I got there, Mrs. Allen met me at the door. She was dressed in the sweetest dress of pale pink organdy, with dozens of frills and elbow sleeves, and she looked just like a seraph. I really think I'd like to be a minister's wife when I grow up, Marilla. A minister might mind my red hair because he wouldn't be thinking of such worldly things. But then, of course, one would have to be naturally good, and I'll never be that. So I suppose there's no use in thinking about it. <laughs> Some people are naturally good, you know, and others are not. I'm one of the others. Mrs. Lynn says I'm full of original sin. No matter how hard I try to be good, I can never make such a success of it as those who are naturally good. It's good to like geometry i expect (laughs) (laughs) so good (laughs) everything about that is perfect because it it is is. it's just yeah and you almost don't want to talk about it because it it the delight of it is just in experiencing it and letting it wash over you but that contemplation of the beauties of nature and the impact that it has on Anne's soul all happening at the same time that she's just chattering on and on about tea at the man's and making it this, you know, experience of coming alive to glory while still thinking about her clothes and her vanity. Yeah, I know. I know. It's so, and I really did. I'm so glad that you read that section because when I was reading it, Heidi, I was like, okay, this is, this is the, this is the, the section of the book. This just like mm-hmm. gets the whole, I mean, like, it's just a little capsule of the whole book. It is. What do you, what do you mean? Go on. 
I think it, it just, how did you describe it, Heidi? It's a juxtaposition of sort of like high thoughts and um, what else did you say, Heidi? Yeah, and I probably said something about mundane experiences yeah. or ordinary life. Or, yeah. Yeah. It, and like the juxtaposition is sort of, it's a little bit lost on Anne, but it's not lost on the reader. I just think there's lots of, yeah. Hmm. Okay, so let's let's talk about this idea of the juxtaposition of them of things that are mundane with like M's imagine imaginings. Because at the beginning of the book, the implication is her imagination is the thing that that um, helps her escape the the world that she has been a part of, right? Like the the tragedies, the the things that she's lived through, her uh, her parents dying and the the difficult situations she's lived in and having to raise these these little children and the illness and all the things she's been around like this it's her imagination has enabled her to push through all that and endure and you know perhaps in a way that as Heidi you've said is maybe a little bit of a fantasy right um, <laughs> that, that children who go through that rarely would be as well well adjusted as as Anne um, of course they're rarely as you know imaginative even the most children who are imaginative are probably not quite like this literary creation that Lucy Maud Montgomery is given. But then as the book goes on, I'm trying to figure out exactly how the book, like it seems like there are degrees of this sort of quotidian everydayness that, that you're talking about here, because there's the, the version that she's been a part of. And then there's the version that sort of is mildly romanticized by the book through Marilla and Matthew. <clears throat> and so he's, is is Anne's imagination meant to be this like inherent good that uh, despite it's like, you know, the, the difficulties that it presents, the way it can get away from her that allows her to escape the mundanity of, of her existence. Or is that changing as the book goes on? Um, how do you read that part of it? Um, I, Maybe my will, question doesn't make sense. Yeah, no, 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 it does. I would vehemently fight to the death <laughs> that Anne's imagination is inherently good and redemptive, but mm. it must be tamed. Like it, it has the potential to rule her. And, you know, we probably, David, you probably say something similar to your children that I say to mine, which is rule yourself or you will be ruled. And that is... I, I think that that's kind of the journey, Anne's journey in these early books in the series, particularly in this one, which is to rule her imagination. So it will not rule her. And the haunted wood is the primary kind of uh, embodiment and example of that, but it keeps happening. And in these beads on a string, these pearls that are falling off the, the silken line as we go throughout the book, some kind of flaw in Anne is being addressed uh, in a heartwarming and delightful, but also quite serious in the Aristotelian term of the word, meaning, you know, Aristotle meant serious in the way of a serious person is someone who is pursuing moral and intellectual virtue intentionally. Um, and, you know, the opposite of a flippant kind of person. And, and Anne is a serious person in that sense. And so she's being trained or formed throughout these experiences of her life. and. Um, so her imagination is one of those things that must be, she must learn to be serious about. It's interesting that she's juxtaposed with people 
who we would call kind of in the contemporary use of the word, very serious. Um, I'm just thinking of Marilla, especially. And they're dreadful. I mean, they're just, they're, their seriousness is just like takes life out of Anne and even out of the reader sometimes. But the kind of serious that you're talking about, I've never, I've never heard that. I've never heard that um, Aristotle used the word in that way. Anne is... Well, I'm teaching ethics right now. So Aristotle's on my mind. Beautiful. And, and it might be translated differently, but in different versions of it. But that's, that's what intent. he brings up in book one. Yes, that a person who is serious is a person who is intent on the development of intellectual and moral virtue, not someone who doesn't know how to laugh. Right, so right. I want to make sure that that's clear. So Anne is, by that light, a very serious character, but she's so much fun. I mean, it's kind of like mm-hmm. a model for her, like how I would like to be in the world. You know, like that vision mm-hmm. of serious is like, it's the most, it's, it's so, compe- it's such a compelling vision of serious. Whereas so many of these other characters, I think they feel like they will be morally and spiritually, oh gosh, what's the right word? Stunted if they enjoy themselves. They right. feel like they're giving into original sin if they're, they're not afraid of it. Yeah, they're afraid yeah. of it in some way. And Anne is not afraid of it. Maybe, maybe now at this point in her life, because she's too young to know better. But I kind of have this feeling, this feeling there's something about her that I, I feel like it will live in her despite her maturity. She won't become, she will maintain that Aristotelian vision of Sirius without losing, without becoming the kind of Sirius that haunts this part of the town. Right. There's another essay topic for you, the anti-Puritanism of Anne of Green. Yeah, right, right. Perfect. I love it. (laughs) So can I, I want to get some clarity on sort of something I was asking my original question that I've been thinking about because I need, because I need your, y'all's help. So the idea, that idea of escapism then, because is is Anne's imagination? Does the book seem to be suggesting that what she that that the value of it is that it helps her escape, or is it something more about that there's a, that there is an, a value of the imagination to mm-hmm. develop someone into that sort of Aristotelian serious person? Like, is it that her imagination needs? It seems to me there's like a couple of different ways of looking at it. On the one hand, life is difficult. You know, life is pain, right? Which is the Princess Bride line we were talking about. Um, and your imagination can help you endure in the midst of that pain, right? That's, that's the world that she has been living in before she comes to Green Gables, before she's accidentally dropped off at that, that train depot and Matthew picks her up and, knew, and she gets something more pleasant. So there's that, there's that version of, of you know, the relationship between the imagination and life. And then there's the version that you guys are talking about here where perhaps the, her imagination, either it needs to be tamed so that she can become that kind of person or it can give her the capacity to see the world in a way that inspires her to work toward that kind of serious mm-hmm. um, personhood. But then, I, so as the book's going on, like in the chapters that we're in now, there always does seem to be this idea of Anne's imagination and her flights of fancy and all those whatever terms you want to use, butting up against the quotidian necessities of the way of life that they're participating in. And the, and it's, I would I don't want to say it's a conflict, but 
her imagination does get in the way of it. So of her doing her duties, shall we say. So is there a conflict? Just I'm use that word loosely. Is there a conflict within the, the themes of this book between those quotidian requirements based on the life they're participating in and her imagination? Would you say that's fair or is that overstating it? And there's something else going on here. It's uh, a good question. I want to go, go first, ahead, Heidi, Tim. because I feel like you've got a more educated answer than I will have. I feel like there is a conflict. I mean, I feel like so often Anne is going into her flights of fancy while she should be, you know, washing the dishes or Marilla's upset yeah. with her because of something like this. And I do think that it distracts her, but I also, I mean, it does seem like she, as the book goes on, she's learning to kind of harmonize those two things to some degree. She's less, she's ne- less negligent in her duties. Nevertheless, I do feel like there's a conflict between those two things. It's very poignant in the beginning of the book, and maybe it's a little bit more muted later in the book. What do you think, so, Heidi? Okay. Oh, sorry. Well, go ahead, Bill. Go ahead and answer, Heidi, and then I'll ha- then I have a follow up question. Um, I think that Anne's uh, was on the road of, at the beginning of the novel of becoming, of, of flying right off the earth. Like she was, her imagination was so much an escape because she had nothing good and pure and beautiful to tie it to. She had no true virtue to tie it to. So she was escaping. But I think, and you know, this is one of those jewel to the death issues for me, which I'm happy to take somebody on on this. Spoken like Anne. Yeah. Um, and I will rock the ridgepole of a roof if you dare me. Um, that, Done. I, that, yeah. <laughs> Fine. Um, we need a that, Zoom video. Anne is that, that one of the entire points of Lucy Maud Montgomery's entire canon and body of work especially in the Anne series, is that imagination is the gateway, the gateway of the human life into the transcendent. And so there, and and what is so wonderful about Anne and why I think every human soul that is healthy in any way responds to her is that to her, the, the quotidian and the transcendent are all mixed up together. They're the same. And, and she's wholehearted about all of it. And, and so to her, she really means it when she says, like, um, this was one of the highest experiences of my life to be able to potentially sleep in a spare room bed. Right. And so (laughs) it is funny, but it's also true for her that her imagination is her pathway into transcendent things, the permanent things, the good things of life. And I, and I think Lucy Mon Montgomery would say, you can't be good, truly good, true and beautiful. You can't be truly virtuous without an imagination that embraces the good, the capital G good. Hmm. And I think that that's her thesis statement, if I could wrap it up. I, can I, David, before you get us onto something else, or maybe it'll be the same thing, but I just want to jump in and say, David, you mentioned kind of like the Puritan kind of vision that this book is kind of arguing against. Um, I think that's a great way of thinking about this book, that it is sort of a juxtaposition to the Puritans. Because the Puritans, and there were many, there were many unbelievable things that the Puritans accomplished. I mean, just setting up shop in 
the continent was a feat in and of itself. They're the first community maybe in the history of the world, probably in the history of the world, to achieve universal literacy. I mean, that's a stunning, that's a stunning achievement. But there were things about the Puritans that were profoundly, that I think we're kind of still wrestling with today. And one of them is that there's this kind of like vision that the moral life is the life for the Christian, the moral life. And that moral life may or may not have anything to do with the market, with nature, with dancing. I mean, I don't want to make the the Puritans into kind of this um, caricature that is off that they've kind of like now achieved kind of caricature status in like your typical American vision. They're just, you know, narrow morals, narrower ties. That's the Puritans. I think to some degree that's accurate and to some degree it's inaccurate. But I do think that that confined vision of the spiritual life being confined just within moral behavior, I think is what this book is saying. That is not the way. That is not a picture of health. Anne's picture is the picture of health. And it includes morality. But it's funny because there's that section where she talks about um, the stories that she's written and she kind of defends it to, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, She defends herself to Marilla by saying, listen, 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 they've got good morals. You love it. They've got good morals. So I think even Anne knows already kind of the crowd that she's dealing with. And it's funny because you get the impression that the real joy of the story that she is telling in the one that she has written is, has nothing to do with the moral. That's just kind of, part of the contract so that she doesn't get in trouble with people who don't really understand the real yeah. goal is everything else aside from the moral that has to kind of get tacked on at the end of the, at the end of the story. Um, I want to read that section in just a second. I want to, just before I move on to that though, or transition or whatever, um, I want to get some clarity on something Heidi was saying, just to make sure that I, there might be listeners who are tracking with me and needing some definition. So, cause you're saying, Howdy, you said something about, um, let's see, something about the idea that the quotidian and the world of her imaginations are, they are or they are not in conflict with one another. I think for Anne, they, well, there's, that's a good question. Because as I, I was saying it, I was thinking, I want to clarify what I'm trying to say here. So I'm glad you followed up on this, David. I think there's two tracks that the answer to that could take. One is that Anne is so lofty thinking, so idealistic that she needs to say, not put the liniment in the cake, so to speak in her entire life. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's one of those embodied, that's one of those beads on the string that Mm -hmm. that embodies this conflict in herself that she's in. This is a conflict that my daughter and I relate to all the time. You know, we'll, forget I'll, I'll put a cake in the oven. Even now I'm 40 years old. And I yesterday put the bread in the oven and I was thinking some kind of lofty thought and I forgot to set the timer. And then 20 minutes later, whatever it was, I'm like, I don't remember how much I forgot about the bread. <laughs> so I don't know how long to cook the bread. 
Um, so that's, that's one thing she needs to actually think about the practical things of life. And that's a big part of her development. On the other hand, the second track this could take is that, um, and this is what I meant when I was in that comment I just made was that to Anne, she's living so intensely that her lofty thoughts are connected to everything. She doesn't see a difference between thinking about God and thinking about making a cake and thinking about a story she's writing. It's, it's all the same to her. Everything is shot through with this eternal light. And the grandeur of God. Yes. It's Hopkins, like in a person. And, and that I think is what Montgomery is trying to say to us is what if we lived like this? Not just like this character I created, but what if what if we approached life with knowing that the mundane is just an invitation into transcendence and so that then, transcendence should be able to touch the mundane. So then her imagination is is not an escape. No, it's that. a weaving together of those things. It's the so then, it's the glorification of and the completion of the mundane. And it's those threads between knowledge and action that, you know, that that we need to have in order to live a fully human life. So, but then at the beginning, it's clear that that her imagination is is an escape from the reality that she's living in, that it's helping her cope. Right. Because she doesn't yet, nobody has taught her about the good. And, and I, once she has a vision for that through the mundane things, through making cakes and going to school and studying geometry, you know, once, once she has some people to love her, a community to live in and mundane everyday tasks that mitigates the escapism of her imagination, but her imagination then kind of uh, shines light on those things so that she doesn't get lost, as Tim just pointed out, in kind of the, just the behaviorism Mm -hmm. of doing good versus loving good. Mm -hmm. So then are there degrees in this book of, like, is there a um, hierarchy of, the quotidian or like, is it more about the context that things are done in? Because right. it's a good question. in Marilla's house, you know, she gives care to Anne and she has the capacity to do that. And so then the quotidian elements of their lives become, are more shot through with, with God's grandeur, yes. right? Like, and Anne's, you know, Anne's able to interpret them that way and see them that way. But in the previous house she lived in, there was, whether it was on purpose or not, by the people who lived there by that woman, there was no capacity for that kind of care to go along with it. So, you know, I'm, I guess I'm, I guess I've been thinking about, you know, is there like a hierarchy then, or is it, does the context in which is happening determine like the, the value of those particular things or cause like they're very different circumstances. You, you know what I've been thinking about David, I've been thinking about that show. Um, is it called the great, British Bake Off, yeah, the yeah. Great mm-hmm. British Baking Show, yeah, yeah, which is a fantastic that is, show. That is, love that Not show. what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> I was thinking about season three of The Wire, where Marlowe's like, you know, he's about to do. Yeah, that. right, right. No, my friends, the Maedas introduced me to it, 
And I, I'm sure that I kind of rolled my eyes when I first heard about it. And then I watched an episode and I thought, oh my goodness, this is so great. So the show is, what do they start with? A dozen bakers and they're kind of, they're given challenges, two or three challenges in each show. Yep. And some of the challenges are very simple. Like they had to bake the perfect English muffin. You know, I mean, it sounds simple. It was exceptionally complex. But then some of them are, you know, they're kind of compelled to, their challenge is to bake something rather exotic, you know, a blueberry cake or what have you. And I, keep, I think about the different bakers that are on that show how much they fret over the quotidian, to use the phrase that we, the word we've been using on the show, they fret over the quotidian. And you can, in the camera always picks them up, you know, oh gosh, maybe I need to pull out the cake now. Maybe I need to leave it in for three more minutes. You know, they're just sweating these little bitty details. And then you see the creations and their creations are exquisite. And I'm sure they just taste unbelievable. And I wonder if that's kind of what Anna's learning in this book. It's that she can dream of the most extraordinary cake that anyone could imagine. Now she's learning all of the little things. Ah, I, I, now I kind of want to back off, but I'll at least follow through with what I'm thinking. She's learning these little things that are kind of like the path toward achieving this incredible cake that she can imagine in her head. I think that Montgomery doesn't spend an inordinate amount of time dwelling on those quotidian details. I mean, they're kind of, they're sublimated, I think, intentionally. She constantly makes reference to them, mainly through Marilla's frustration. Um, and they seem like they're in the background, but that's, I think it's part of what Anna's learning. It's not the message of the book, though, as far as I see it. It's not like... Yeah. Anne learns the quotidian details of life so yeah, that she right. can, you know, give structure to her incredible dreams. That doesn't <laughs> seem like where, where she's going. No, it, it seems like, if anything, it's, it's a, um, probably a deeply felt uh, way of looking at the world that's in Lucy Maud Montgomery's own imagination and that's kind of being played out here uh, in, in her writing. And even if it's not like, well, the moral, shall we say. So let's, right. it, Heidi, are you, do you want to add more to this or, or can we, can we, should we read that passage? Uh, no, let's, let's read the passage. I do want to say, <laughs> I believe in Lucy Mods Montgomery's version, like vision for imagination. Mm -hmm. And I've been yeah. sitting here thinking, listening to this conversation, wondering to myself, speculating and i'll probably think about this all day and forget to switch over the laundry and forget to put on <laughs> turn the timer yeah, that's on right and put the yeast forget, in your yeah, bread exactly um i believe it like implicitly mm. I, I i own it body and soul i live mm. it and i don't know and this is my confession i do not know if i believe it because I believe it, or I believe it because this is the formation of my entire childhood. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know how much I've absorbed from these books and just put into practice or, yeah. and, and how much I actually just would Chicken have come the to the same conclusions by living a life without Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> it's so funny, Heidi, that you say this, because I have thought to myself, I thought, is Heidi's vision of the world kind of nature to her? Like, is it just her nature? It's the way that she like was just kind of like constructed or 
has it been nurtured into her by this book? And well, she's read it 742 times, so it's going to influence. Right. At some point, the question just becomes moo. You can't answer the question. Yeah. It's a cow's opinion. It's moo. That's from friends. I I hear you. Thank you for saying that because I don't know. I really don't know. I think I feel like it's just me. And that's why I'm in classical education. That's why I do this podcast. That's Mm -hmm. why I do everything. And I feel like it's just me, but hearing you guys talk about this and reading the book from the podcasty kind of perspective in which yeah. I have to defend this, not, not defend it because it's being attacked, but try to put it into words yeah, yeah, I, um, yeah, and be an apologist for something that's just deeply held in my soul like that. I, I'm just sitting here thinking, I really don't know. I really don't know where where, how the two overlap, what's been my formation and what is inherent. And so, so there's Tim, that. Let's, let's, let's play a little game of pretend it were so let's pretend it were so that this, uh, that this show, that part of our construct was we had to have conflicts in every episode between us. Yeah. And so yeah. Heidi's like loving this book and it's good natured conflict. Let's pretend that that's the case because you know, if, right. we, if we were all together, we'd be arguing about stuff and whatnot. I'm going to break a slate over your head. <laughs> so Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So like you can't call her names. We're, we're just going to say there's no name calling allowed. Um, no Shakespearean insults allowed. You should, you right. should put your Shakespearean insult kit away, but you still have to have some sort of conflict on the show. And Heidi is, you know, vociferously de- defending the inherent good of of this uh this book what's the chat yeah. what's the approach that you're going to take to you know argue against something that she <laughs> she says like if you were gonna if you had to have like take- if i had to kind of like adopt a stance yeah yeah in that stance, I couldn't insult anyone in the process of adopting that. i couldn't call anyone a fastidian nut without a kernel but well, I had to kind of like that. adopt that, that one would be okay. okay. You can only do that. We're going to say you can only call someone that three times in any given podcast. So okay. you've now met your limit of calling people that particular insult. And now you can't no more ad hominems and attacking Heidi herself. Okay. <laughs> how are you, you, what's the approach you take to like, I guess what I'm saying is what would you say is a flaw in this book that I, Heidi would make have to defend herself? against? <laughs> well, I don't think this is a flaw, but I do think this is a, um, a shallow reading would say something, and we've talked about this, a shallow reading would say something like this. This is a book of escapism about a girl who lives for escapism. And it's an unrealistic portrayal of what life was like at that time. It's an unrealistic portrayal of what Anne's inner self would actually be like. It's an unrealistic portrayal. It's basically a book that sidesteps any form of realism um, in the hopes of inflating our sails uh, with a kind of like with the hot air of imagination. Mm. Hmm. I like and I just think that's a- your your case with basically saying this is what somebody might say if they were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of covered it. Well, I do. I mean, I think, I think that you could read the book that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we talk all the time on this show about how, I mean, reading is a skill. 
And I think because everybody reads, everyone, we tend to kind of democratize the ability to read a little bit. And that's unfortunate. I, I, you mean like because reading, I write like the professionally. reading closely? What yeah, and, un, and seeing, seeing depth, understanding themes, seeing character development. I mean, those are skills that it takes are... Practice. It does. It takes practice. I think I'm particularly sensitive to this because maybe you guys have had this a similar experience. I write professionally. I get paid to write. And I'll tell people what I do. <laughs> I cannot tell you how often people say, oh, you're a writer. I write too. Hmm. And it's, it's, I don't want to like be overly cruel, but sometimes I want to say, well, but we're talking about kind of different things. You know, it's, um, how do I say it? My buddy, Andrew builds multi-million dollar buildings. And for a young person to say, oh yeah, I built a tree house when I was 14 years old. Those you're so you're both builders. No, I don't think you're both builders. You both can build things, and building a treehouse is like a step in the direction of building a multi-million-dollar apartment complex. But it's a it, the, at some point a quantitative difference becomes a qualitative difference, and I think that all oh, this is like a big point to say. I um, have a good reading of Anne of Green Gables. I think. <laughs> I mean, I really do think that like. A, if you don't have kind of like eyes to see the depth of this book, um, you might read it the way that I just described. It's an escapism about a girl that escapes. So we sometimes need to talk more about this idea of like the democratization of reading and how you think that's a problem. Mm-hmm. We need to, we need to, and I need to make, I need to phrase it. However I phrase it, when I ask you to explain further, I have to explain it in the way that makes you seem the least democratic uh, like more <laughs> like a total, yeah, a total elitist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. Well, is I, anybody can read. It's just that there are specific skills you have to practice doing to be good at it. Exactly. Just like anybody exactly. could, could cook. Some people are maybe predisposed to be more creative or gifted at it intuitively, but anybody can learn the skills with the right amount of practice and perhaps some teaching. Is that what you're saying? I think so. I, I, most people. Should we say I, most people, not anybody? <laughs> Reading is one of the, let me, how do I say this? Reading is so emphasized in education as it ought to be. And I think because everyone can read, I mean, we live in a near universally literate society, that I think because everyone can read, there's a strange thing that sort of happens that people, that sometimes people view reading as a skill without quality without like variability of quality that if you can read an email, but if you can, um, if you can decode, you can read. If you can decode, you can read. That's a great way of saying it. And that is not true. It's just not true. Heidi, would you like to jump in here? Are you for the democratization of, of the written word or are you an elitist uh, who believes in, in oligarchical reading structures? (laughs) <laughs> um, do I get to be in the oligarchy? <laughs> yeah, well, the oligarchy determines the oligarchy. So, I mean, yeah. Right. Um, Have you not read about Roman history? Right, right. I am very easily swayed on this issue 
I'll put that out because reading is so, so important to me. What I want to believe is that anybody and everybody can read and that everybody should read. Like I am, I want to, to just hand the great books and the good books to everybody. And my own experience is nobody taught me how to read and and someone gave me this book and it changed my life. And so I, however, however, so, this so is like, why so I'm, can I, can I put a, yeah. can I summarize what you're saying there just for the sake of my own clarity? Yeah. Can I state back what I think you might be saying? Yes. Are you saying that? You sound like Tim right now. This yeah. is how we form <laughs> each other. Yeah. Are you saying that even if you don't necessarily know the skills of like, the kind of close reading that Tim is talking about, that the act of reading itself, even on a rudimentary level, can be valuable and life-changing. I want that to be true. I, I, want, take, I that, have a very romantic view on this. I want it to be that any kind of troubled person can pick up a good book and a great book and it can harmonize their souls. However... I'm easily swayed on this because I see reading done very badly on a daily basis. So by yourself. I, well, probably, yes, <laughs> I am sure. Pray for me that I'm a bad reader in a lot of the a lot of cases. Um, or my reading is corrupted by my own sin, by my own ignorance. You know, there's many times when a book that is inherently good might be too much for my soul at a given time. I might read, but dislike it or think it's boring or, um, or read it wrongly because of my own suffering or my own darkness in my soul, whatever. So I, that's myself. And I see as Tim, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I see students and just people taking things out of context and using good books to defend and to act on bad things. And, and I do want to say to those people, no, 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 you're reading it wrong. Mm -hmm. And I feel like an education would help. Mm -hmm. And I, so I, like I said, I'm very easily swayed on this issue. It feels, I, I think part of the reason this, the conversation could become prickly is because there's this tension and the tension is we want to be we aspire to be two things that are in tension with each other we want to be egalitarian with regards to people right the 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 value of people um should be embraced regardless of creed, race, gender, like that's what we want to hold up, that every person is valuable and has capacity, often has greater capacity than they imagine. Right. So that egalitarianism is in contrast or is in tension with my stated vision of kind of like, yeah, I'm an elitist about reading. I think there are better readers and I think there are worse readers. And I think some of it is natural ability, but often a lot of it is just, it's just practice. Good readers have worked really hard at it and they've read more and they've digested more and they've kind of struggled through difficult readings. And so that kind of elitism is always going to be in tension with that 
kind of egalitarianism with regards to the the value of human beings. And I, I think we're always going to kind of like trip. It's going to be, it's always easy to kind of like err on one side or the other side. And I probably sound like I'm erring on the elitist side. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's good do, to challenge, do, to rise higher. Do, do you guys think that great books resist bad readings? Unfortunately, I don't. And I think that's where I come lean more towards Tim's point of view on this and why I'm so easily swayed on this issue and very easily convinced. Like I'll, yes, that, yes, that kind of on, on this particular issue. And I think about it a lot um, that I, I can't believe how many bad readings of great books there are and how, how many small changes there could be that if, you know, for example, when we did the Odyssey and the, the point of view that Odysseus is cheating on Penelope, right? That and, and the rejection of Odysseus because of that. And I feel like, and I think there's some simple principles about Greek culture and the way the Greeks saw the world that could correct that. But wow. those things yeah. don't come naturally. You can't, you can't generate that. You have to be taught that. And to finish my thought, quickly. Yes. I think that great books need some principles in order to read them or else they could be read wrongly very easily. So, okay. I said, do great books resist bad readings? You say no. I said no. Tim, I assume you're going to say the same thing, but if you you, want to... What do you mean resist? Do you mean that... Say more about what you mean by that. Well, my follow-up question was going to be... So Heidi says no to that. What if I ask the question, do great books overcome the impact of bad readings? Oh. So like, is there a good or a range of goods um, that are inherent in great books that that can, because of their inherent value, overwhelm or overcome the negative impacts of bad readings to the extent that even if you don't know how to read a book well, there are goods in them that can feed your soul even when you're reading parts of it badly. Oh, 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 oh. I will, I will say yes, but let mm. me try to, I, I, I might not be understanding what you're saying, David. Let me give an example of how I think that would work and you can huh? tell me if I'm getting it. Yeah. Hamlet, we all acknowledge Hamlet is a great piece of literature. Right. The um, depth. T.S. Eliot and all. Yeah, <laughs> the depth of Hamlet, I think, is lost on. Let's just assume, take for granted that the depth of Hamlet is not understood by those who are like unacquainted with Hamlet, with Shakespeare, who have done a great deal of reading or theater going. Let's just take that for granted. However, I think that that person can absolutely enjoy just what happens to Hamlet, what happens in that play to him. They can just enjoy kind of like the revenge cycle of the play. And they can be thrilled by the fact that Hamlet finally at the end avenges his father by killing his uncle, by briefly kind of like assuming the throne before his death. I think they can appreciate those things without understanding 
the depth of why Hamlet feels that this world is flat, stale, and unprofitable. Well, could, couldn't you say that even, that it, I mean, I think I might argue, I haven't, I've just been asking questions so far, but I think I might argue that even if someone doesn't know how to read Hamlet and that every, all, that's, all those things that you're talking about are lost on 99% of people who read it, mainly because 99, 90% of people who read it are like 14-year-olds, then they can still be fed, like their souls can still be fed by certain passages or you know, by the poetry of For sure. things like that. And so for sure, you know, that, that even if you don't know how to read it properly, you know, I kind of think that's what in many ways, Anne of Green Gables is, you know, to bring it full circle, is kind of exploring because Anne truly doesn't understand a lot of the things she's reading. She takes great pleasure in them and they inspire her imagination, things like that. But her soul, you know, even though she doesn't understand the greater sort of, the, the greater sort of universal things at play and everything she's being told or reading or whatever, they're still giving her tools to not just cope, but flourish in a world that isn't necessarily made for someone like her. Yeah. Um, I mean, to use, to use Heidi's, this is a good example. Heidi's mentioned these different authors that are quoted within the text of Anne of Green Gables. mm -hmm. I haven't recognized the Browning quotes. I just don't know Browning very well. Yeah. But boy, despite the fact that I'm kind of, an impoverished reader in that sense, I can still completely be enthralled by Anne's character, by these like wonderful events and mishaps that happened to her. So in this way, I'm, I'm a good example of this sort of, um, but, of, of a not terribly advanced reader. Yeah, but see, of you, Anne of Green Gables. You, you're not, you're, you're saying that you're not an advanced reader though, because you don't have specialized knowledge that would help you understand a particular part of the book. And to me, that's a different thing than the idea that you have skills of reading that would allow you to read everything, even if you didn't have specialized knowledge about it. That's why you're, no, not, I, I, you're not a good reader because you have specialized knowledge about content. No, I don't think that you can say being a good reader. Uh, how do I say this? I, I think I understand your point, but I think that specialized knowledge is not the whole of quality reading, but it is an important skill that it makes a good reader. In other words, like to use another example, crime and punishment. You do not have to have an advanced degree in 19th century Russian history to enjoy and to really probe the depths of that novel. Now, someone who has specialized knowledge about 19th century Russian history are they going to see aspects of the book that the non-advanced degree reader will see? Yes. But does that mean that the guy with the advanced degree in Russian history is a better reader than the other guy? No, by no means. But it's definitely yeah. one aspect that could contribute to him being a better reader. I think that at the risk of being like irritating, I think I might argue, I mean, I guess anytime anyone ever says anything in a conversation that is moderately debate-ish, then that should be the preface at the risk of being irritating. Um, <laughs> but at the risk of being irritating, I think what I would say that when you talk about that with crime and punishment, what you're talking about is the constant, or, or even like understanding Browning and Anne Green Gables. To me, that's like comprehensive scholarship. And that's a distinction between that and like reading to me. Why? I mean, if any, I mean, I, I might say at least that there are different kinds of reading then. That, that, that I can, that someone can be a good reader of something without being a, without be, being able to be a scholar 
kind of something. Agreed. And I, and agreed, I would say agreed. That while it's true that that might make you a more comprehensive reader of it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a higher good inherently. Right. I think that's, and what, maybe, I that's what I would say. would say. Maybe to bring it back to Anna Green Gables, I, I, maybe the faculty that's needed more than anything else is a well-developed imagination. Amen. I mean, if we're going to like, mm-hmm. right? I mean, doesn't that seem like a really good reader mm-hmm. has the capacity Despite any lack of scholarship on 19th century Russian history, oh, has the ability <laughs> to fully immerse oneself in the narrative characters, themes that are being established by the author, and to just sort of like inhabit them in a way that someone, to your point, David, who just has a sort of scholarly ability, is sort of mining the text for let's call, you know, like scholarly insights, but is not necessarily giving them over in the imaginative sense to the narrative. And I would agree with you, if this is what we're talking about, I would agree with you that that scholarly mining is an inferior mode of reading. But I don't think that, I think good scholars, the, the scholars that I really admire the most are the most imaginative. They mirror the two. That ima- they mar- the and they, they do. They marry those two things, and so they fully give themselves over to the author, and they imaginatively engage in this depth that I aspire to, and yet at the same time, they know um, what the czar was doing in 1858. I want to say, though, because here's – this is (laughs) – I totally agree with everything you guys are saying both of you, whenever you're talking, I'm like, yes, but because (laughs) I, and here's where I do tend, if I had to pick a side on this, I'm slightly more on the democratization side, because how do you get that imagination? By reading. Mm. And that is, I think, where I, so many say, well, you know, David's original question was do the great books resist a bad reading? Uh, And then the follow-up question, and I don't remember exactly how you phrased it, David, but it kind of comes down to, should you read them anyway? Do the great books have the capacity to harmonize the soul, even if you read them badly sometimes? And the answer to that is also yes. So I just keep, like, just keep reading, just keep reading, even if you're, and and because it, great book, a good book creates, the moral and intellectual imagination so that you get better at it. And, and I think it's equally dangerous to read entire, and I know you would agree with this too, Tim. So I, I'm, I'm, this isn't against what you're saying. It yeah, is yeah. equally dangerous and destructive to read only for intellectual capacity as it is to read without inten- an intellectual capacity. Uh, so, and I think that's the thing that reading does. And that's why I do tend to be more on the democratization side, mm-hmm. that it is reading itself that creates the ability to read. Mm. Yeah. I mean, so practice. you might as well read the best yeah. ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tim, I, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we should probably wrap this Wait, up. So what were you going to say? No, that? We can keep talking about this forever so we can pick it up in another I episode. I wasn't, I wasn't going to, I was going to, you mentioned, I, I was just going to say, I liked that you, um, you talked about the idea of how the best 
scholars marry that imagination. Yes. Uh-huh. If there is a degree to tie into what you're saying there, Heidi, there's a degree to which they're doing that because they believe in that democratization, right? Like yeah. I'm yeah. reading this. I just, I've been telling you guys about this book I read, right? Like I just finished this book called Dreams of El Dorado. It's not fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this book about the history of the West. It's, it's wonderful. It came out last year. Everybody should read it. Um, but it's, it's so well written and it's told in a way that is so with, has such an energy to it that at times it feels like you're reading fiction. It's almost like a page turner at sections, even though the central conceit of the book is that the history of the West is a, a fundamentally an economic one. And so this guy has this deep scholarship of the concepts that he's talking about, that he has this literary imagination, this literary sense about that scholarship that he's able to make it readable. And that's what, you know, the David McCullers do, the people who are really great, yeah. the, that, that, are, that are both literary and scholars at the same time. And, and when they do that, that enables the democratization of scholarship because they then are, because then they're able to speak to people like us who are not necessarily capable of, or at least for me, who are not necessarily capable of diving into the scholarship in a way that they can. And so the, the, the ability to present, to, to use their imagination to present that, present that, that data, so to speak, makes, it, makes the data become democratized in a sense. Um, and that, right. that's like part of the whole process, I think. But anyway, we should probably wrap this up here. Um, do you have any final thoughts? I'm thinking for my final thought, we should read the passage where she's uh, talking about, the passage Tim was talking about, about putting a moral into a story. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's the end of chapter 26. Um, and there's a bit where it says, I think the story writing business is the foolishest, foolishest yet. Um, I have it here. So I'll read for a bit to help to give you guys a chance to pick it up. And then we can read to the end of the chapter and call it a day after that. Does that sound good? Yes. Okay. It's on page, it's on chapter 26, David. Yes. Towards the end, the last couple of pages and the paragraph begins with, I think this story writing business is the foolish just yet. That's scoffed. Okay. Scoffed okay. I'll, I'll read a few paragraphs or whatever, and then I'll toss it over to one of you to, to finish it up or, you know, read the next third or something. So I think this story writing business is the foolish just yet scoff Marilla. You'll get a pack of nonsense in your heads and waste time that should be put on your lessons. Reading stories is bad enough, but writing them is worse. But we're so careful to put a moral into the mall, Marilla, explained Anne. I insist upon that. All the good people are rewarded and all the bad ones are suitably punished. I'm sure that must have a wholesome effect. The moral is the great thing. Mr. Allen says so. I read one of my stories to him and Mrs. Allen, and they both agreed that the moral was excellent. Only they laughed in the wrong places. I like it better when people cry. Jane and Ruby almost always cry when I come to the pathetic parts. Diana wrote her Aunt Josephine about our club and her Aunt Josephine wrote back that we were to descend her some of our stories. So we copied out four of, every, of our very best and sent them. Miss Josephine Berry wrote back that she had never read anything so amusing in her life. That kind of puzzled us because the stories were all very pathetic and almost everybody died. But I'm glad Miss Berry liked them. It shows our club is doing some good in the world. Mrs. Allen says that ought to be our object in everything. I do really try to make it my object, but I forget so often when I'm having fun. I hope I shall be a little like Mrs. Allen when I grow up. Do you think there's any prospect of it, Marilla? Hi, do you want to pick it up there? I shouldn't say there was a great deal, was Marilla's encouraging answer. I'm sure Mrs. Allen was never such a silly, forgetful little girl as you are. No, but she wasn't always so good as she is now either, said Anne seriously. She told me so herself. That is, she said she was a dreadful mischief when she was a girl and was always getting into scrapes. I felt so encouraged when I heard that. 
Is it very wicked of me, Marilla, to feel encouraged when I hear that other people have been bad and mischievous? Mrs. Lynde says it is. Mrs. Lynde says she always feels shocked when she hears of anyone ever having been naughty, no matter how small they were. Mrs. Lynde said she once heard a minister confess that when he was a boy, he stole a strawberry tart out of his aunt's pantry, and she never had any respect for that minister again. Now, I wouldn't have felt that way. I'd have thought it was real noble of him to confess it. And I'd have thought what an encouraging thing it would be for small boys nowadays who do naughty things and are sorry for them to know that perhaps they may grow up to be ministers in spite of it. That's how I'd feel, Marilla. The way I feel at present, Anne, said Marilla, is that it's high time you had those dishes washed. You've taken half an hour longer than you should with all your chattering. Learn to work first and talk afterwards. I've never, <laughs> never understood anything more in my life than when Marilla said that. <laughs> because I have a child who will talk and talk and talk while he's supposed to be doing other things. And I always <laughs> want to say exactly that. And it's like, takes everything within me to be interested in everything that he's saying. I mean, I am interested in hearing what he likes, but you know, like I think every parent feels that way. Like at a certain point, you just stop and do your stuff. <laughs> And he is one of the most delightful children I've ever encountered in my life. And that is really not exaggeration. He is just charming, but I don't have to listen to him talk all day. So when I'm around him, I just am like, just say stuff. (laughs) He does remind me. I told some friends this recently. He does sound, he does remind me of Anne in some ways. I need to have him read the book or watch the movie or something here pretty soon. Um, Tim, as a writer, how do you feel about this passage? Oh, I think it's great. I love it. I just wanted to let everyone um, remind everyone that you're a writer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you do, if you want to like get me going, this is just an egotistical thing. I fully acknowledge it. <laughs> but if you want to get me going, like just send some stranger up to me who, you know, writes grocery lists. <laughs> and have that person say, "You're a writer." Oh, I'm a writer too. <laughs> it's just, it's a, it's total ego. I know it, but it just like, oh my gosh, it will set me off. You don't know off. the work I put into this. <laughs> no, there's like, there's, it's kind of true. It's true. Mm-hmm. There's things. That, yeah. <laughs> I sound positively horrible," said Tim, confessedly. <laughs> Uh, Heidi, any final thoughts? Or oh, I just, I love that. I, I just love this passage. I love the stories that they're writing. They, they grew in beauty side by side until they were 16. Then Bertram DeVere came to their native village and fell in love with the fair Geraldine. <laughs> I just, their stories are so great. I used to write these kinds of stories too. People with fancy names and you know that and this to your point about escapism they've they're creating a fantasy world that they feel is better than their world and the adults are laughing at them um but i think every writer every true writer we've probably all the three of us and many of our listeners have probably all written stories like this that uh or plays or poems or whatever that we just look back on and know they're so bad but they're also part like a really important part of your development as a writer as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that's where you learn uh, as all writers do. Somebody then comes along and says, no, don't write like that, write like this. And that's where Tim, your advice comes in. You actually have to have some kind of 
knowledge and training in order to be good at something. And writing is no exception to that. But it's a good start. And we all probably recognize ourselves in this. For sure. Um, David, my closing thought is John Baker. (laughs) (laughs) I just, you got, you, I I have to see you guys watch. I have to see you guys watch the video two times. We have to have the Zoom recordings posted on Facebook. We've just got to have it. It's got to be. True. I just, I have to put my makeup on and brush my hair. Otherwise we're going to have a recreation of our Zoom call yesterday. And (laughs) that, you know, the peddler positively assured me that it would turn my hair a beautiful raven black. (laughs) (laughs) He seems like such a nice man. I really really want to get the um, uh, further adventures of that particular peddler, because I feel like there's a story that's being untold there. Um, his she name got is Bertram into, Devere. <laughs> he absolutely got into some scrapes somewhere along the way uh, and forgot who he had sold the uh, false die to. Was attacked, was set upon by some... Uh, some uh, some savage, highwaymen? Savage dogs. Oh, the next okay. time he passed through that particular farm. Nice. I, I, that's just Do off the top of my head. First adventure that I'm imagining. All right, y'all. Well, thank you once again. Uh, to everyone who's been listening, don't forget to check out the Patreon episodes. We've got uh, crime and punishment going on right now, as, as you know. So if you want to get access to those, plus some talks that people have given, and plus some sweet show swag, you can head over to patreon.com slash close reads. Uh, David, don't forget the plays, the thing we are recording our final episode of as you like it Maniana. tomorrow. So that means we're going to release the batch very soon. All right. So that's coming in the next, well, I guess the first, next couple of weeks then. So everyone's got to make sure mm-hmm. you're subscribed yeah. to that feed. That's got its own feed, of course, to place the thing. And uh, we have several plays up there if you want to get caught up. But uh, yeah, As You Like, it's one of my very favorites. Like my favorite of all Shakespeare plays, actually. Um, so uh, I'm excited to listen to you guys uh, talk about that. And then I'll be the person who gets on Facebook and yells about stuff that you're saying. So, But with that, for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading.